You are now listening to the December 18th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have forgiveness, the sermon, and the God of Abraham. First, let's begin with forgiveness. Hello, I am Joseph McDonald, and this is Forgiveness. We often find ourselves struggling with past sufferings. For a particularly acute suffering, we may find it impossible to let go. The more we think about it, the deeper that pain gets. We are not able to let it go and end up dwelling on it. Some of us may refuse to go to a meeting if we know that a person who caused us pain will be there, no matter how important this meeting is. Some of us may go to a store that is farther away from our house in fear that we might run into a person who has caused us pain. Worse yet, some of us leave a church and move to another one because we do not want to see a person who has caused us pain. At some level, we understand these behaviors. However, it also makes us wonder whether such behaviors are wise. How much of our past unpleasant events keep affecting our present and future life? Let us think through this together. First and foremost, we cannot change the events that have already happened. If we are not able to overcome it, that is like being stuck in the past. Well, it is not good to just ignore what has happened. If we do not deal with it, it could happen again. Also, ignoring can only go so far. At some point, we might happen to remember it, and the bad memory will come flooding back. The hurt happens all over again. What should we do then? The prescription that is shown in the Bible is clear. We need to forgive the people that have hurt us, not just as a formality, but in a sincere and meaningful way. That is how we deal with the past sufferings. If we forgive those that have hurt us, we will not get hurt again, even if we happen to remember it. That is simply because we are done with the past and are focused on moving on. Paul says in Philippians 3, Verses 13 and 14. Brothers and sisters, I do not regard myself as having taken hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He says he is forgetting what is behind and reaching for what lies ahead. To what? Toward the goal. What is the goal? The goal is the prize of the calling of God in Christ Jesus. God gives this prize to the winner of the calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul pressed forward for this prize. The original word for pressing on in Greek is dioko, and it means aggressively chase like a hunter pursuing a catch. Consider a hunter chasing after prey. The hunter fixes his eyes on the target and chases it until he finally catches it. Consider an athlete that enters a race. If he prepares well and participates to the best of his ability and he presses on toward the victory, he will get the prize. To get the reward of our spiritual race, we should not look back. We shouldn't let the things that lie behind us hold us back in our race toward the goal God has laid down before us. We need to get rid of all unnecessary obstacles if we want to win the race of faith. The people who are stuck in the past can't perform the assignments God has given to them. Think of Jesus Christ as he was crucified. In Luke 23, verses 33 through 34, Jesus is described as follows. 
And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing his garments among themselves. Jesus was betrayed by his own beloved disciple, and he was forsaken by his people. He was flogged and mocked by the people. They spat on him. They pulled down on his head a crown of thorns that tore into his skin. His clothes were taken off, and he was hung naked on the cross with his hands and feet nailed to it. He was humiliated and suffered. However, to move forward, he did not look back. Christ did not harbor ill feelings in his heart for what they did to him. Christ did not call on God to punish the people for their wrongdoings. Most of all, he did not ask God to take revenge on the people. Jesus simply asked God, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus was forgetting what lied behind, and he was reaching forward to what lied ahead. He focused on completing God's purpose for sending him to earth. He obeyed God by praying, God's will be done, and God's grace will be shown. Which is bigger, the suffering Jesus went through, or the suffering that you had? Could you argue your humiliation and suffering were bigger than Jesus's? Who can dare say his or her suffering is bigger than Christ's? You might try to argue, he is God, that's why he can forgive them. Or, it's possible for Jesus to forgive them because he is different from us. That might be a good argument if no one else except Jesus has forgiven other people in the history of Christianity. However, there were others. After Jesus had ascended to heaven, many churches were formed and led by the promised Holy Spirit. There were many Christians, one of whom was Stephen. The last moments before the death of Stephen were recorded in Acts chapter 7. At that moment, he was being stoned for his testimony about Christ's resurrection. Acts 7, 59-60 says, They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. So we see from Scripture that not just Jesus, but also Stephen forgave those that committed offenses against them, even the offense of being murdered. Pastor Yang Won Sun in South Korea forgave the person who murdered his two sons. Pastor Sun later adopted the killer of his sons to be his own son. Many from his own family objected to his loving actions of forgiveness, but later they came to understand and appreciate his desire to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. The early believers that sincerely followed Jesus set examples for us by forgiving others. Their actions were righteous. If they were able to forgive others, we also can. Why? Because the Holy Spirit that worked in their hearts is the same Holy Spirit that works in our hearts. After all, Christians are the people who obey God. Are you a Christian? If the answer is yes, then the response about forgiving someone who caused you great pain should be an obvious one. Forgiveness. That is all for today. Have a blessed week.
Long awaited, precious promise, Son of God and Son of Man. Heaven's glory in a manger has come to us in Bethlehem. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Miter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is, God's Perspective Offers Hope. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. Well, good morning, church. It is so good to see each and every one of you. Merry Christmas. We are so glad that you're here and a part of our services today as we, uh, we focus on that baby in the manger. So one of the most difficult aspects, I think, of being a Christian, and I'm curious if you guys will relate to this and agree with me, one of the most difficult aspects of being a Christian is learning to resist the temptation to look at things from a worldly perspective. Anybody with me on that? A few of you, the honest ones, yes, right? Um, It is hard. Usually when something happens in my life or something big happens in this country or in this world or in the church, my first response, which is basically my default response, is to look at things from my limited human worldly perspective. And uh, a great example of this can be seen whenever my wife calls me. My wife will call me in the middle of the day and my first thought is, what's wrong? And then I answer, I'll go, hey, what's going on? And she'll be like, well, I gotta tell you something. And I'm like, what happened? And, and I'm expecting bad news. I'm looking, you guys with me? Has anybody ever been in that scenario? I hope you have. Um, it, it's, it's amazing 
that my default is always what's wrong, what's going on, worldly perspective on everything. Now, um, when I look at things from a limited, my limited worldly perspective, I naturally come to all kinds of limited worldly conclusions. I do. That's the inevitable result of looking at things from a worldly perspective is you come to limited worldly conclusions. And here's the kicker. Just about every one of those limited worldly conclusions that I come to tend to fill my heart with anxiety, stress, fear, doubt, worry, you name it. That's when I look at things from a worldly perspective. I do it all the time. I do it all the time. I've been a Christian a really long time. I'm a pastor. And without a doubt, my default is always to go, all right, let's look at this from my perspective. And that's really a dangerous uh, place to be. And that is exactly why, folks, learning to look at things from an eternal perspective will be one of the most significant spiritual skills you will ever develop in this lifetime. And I mean it. It's a skill that I think that we can grow in and that we can develop. But we begin to look at things through God's eyes, from an eternal perspective, from a biblical perspective. And when we do that, everything changes. Do you want to know what it looks like to look at things from an eternal perspective? It looks something like this. Looks like that, but it also looks like this. It looks like this. So I present to you the word of God today from the book of Genesis chapter 50. This is what it says. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Amen. The man who spoke these words was a man by the name of Joseph. Of course, this was all the way back in the book of Genesis. And Joseph spoke these words to his own brothers who had earlier in his life sold him into slavery. You see, what Joseph understood, which is so easy to lose sight of, is that even when things might look disastrous from a worldly perspective— that is my brother selling me into slavery, he knew, Joseph knew that God is always at work behind the scenes, working everything out according to the counsel of his own will. And this very truth offers us hope. This very truth offers us hope in a year like 2020. By all perspectives, 2020 was a disaster. Tough year, worldwide pandemic shut down the economy. Many people lost jobs. Many people lost their lives. Families were separated from one another. Uh, children couldn't talk to their parents. People that had been married 50, 60, 70 years could no longer be in each other's presence or even talk to one another or had to do it through windows. And the list goes on and on. I'm not even getting into the political stuff, the riots, you name it, it goes on and on and on. And if we, we were to look at this year from a worldly perspective, man, we would lose hope. But when we look at it from an eternal perspective, things are different. Listen, folks, God is not in heaven watching world events unfold. He is directing world events as they unfold, and not just some of them, all of them. And by the way, this same truth applies to your very life and mine. It may seem that life is random or that the vast majority of events that are happening to you or to your family are just coincidental. But that could not be any further from the truth. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that a sparrow cannot fall to the ground apart from the sovereign will of God. Folks, there is nothing that is happening in your life that isn't being used by God for his eternal purposes. And that means where you sit this very minute and what you are going through this very minute. And if you need any further proof of that, look no further than that child in the manger. Listen, many of the events leading up to and immediately following the birth of Christ looked anything but promising or hopeful from a worldly perspective. Yet we quickly learn God's fingerprints are all over, all over every event, every single event that happened up to and preceding the birth of Christ, his fingerprints are all over it. And I want to give you a couple of examples this morning. So take, for example, the Virgin Mary becoming pregnant, okay? We read about it in Matthew chapter one. It says this. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, from a worldly perspective, a young virgin becoming pregnant before actually consummating her marriage with her husband has disaster written all over it, does it not? Listen, so bad is this development that Joseph, the husband, makes plans to get out of the relationship and move on. 
and her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. He was a just man. He could have done a lot worse to her, but he is a just man. And he goes, listen, I'm going to get, I'm going to bow out of this relationship, hopefully not bring too much disgrace to her. And I will move on with my life. Listen, in our day and age, this sort of scenario isn't quite as bad as it would have been 2,000 years ago. Even 50 years ago, this would have been a bad scenario in our country. It's not so bad today. It's not even looked at as bad today. But from a worldly perspective, Mary and Joseph are stuck between a rock and a hard place. They're in a very difficult situation. But here's the deal. From an eternal perspective, folks, God has them right where he wants them. God has them right where he wants them. And as you know, God appears to Joseph in a dream, and in that dream, Joseph is given an eternal perspective. He is brought up to speed very quickly on what is really happening. So again, church, I present to you the word of God this morning, Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 20. I know it's a little small, but I'll read it to us. But as he considered these things, that is Joseph, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, wouldn't it be great that every time we found ourselves between a rock and a hard place, God would give us a dream and tell us exactly how it's going to work out for his eternal purposes? It'd be really nice if that happened. But that doesn't really happen a whole lot. But in this case, Joseph gets that privilege. And as a result of this dream, Joseph has that eternal perspective he needs. And here's what's really amazing. Joseph doesn't hesitate to act upon this eternal perspective. And he does things that I'm sure those that were watching him do thought he was crazy to do. For example, he married a woman who was already pregnant and he was going to raise a son that wasn't physically his. But that is exactly the type of things that people do who have an eternal perspective. They live their lives and they make decisions that are going to seem completely foolish to those who are only operating from a limited worldly perspective. Did you get that? That's the case. When you have an eternal perspective, it's going to affect the way that you live your life and the decisions that you make. And I guarantee you there are going to be people in your life who are going to look at you and go, you're crazy. She got pregnant without you, Joseph. Why are you going to marry her? That's not your son. Why would you raise a son that's not yours? You're crazy. Joseph's just saying, you don't know what I know. You're not looking at this like I'm looking at it. Because if you knew what I know, that God in heaven is working all things out according to the counsel of his own will, then you would understand that I'm, why I'm doing what I'm doing. Mary and Joseph learned very quickly and in a powerful way, folks, that no matter how bad things might look from a worldly perspective, God is always at work behind the scenes, working things out according to the counsel of his will. Now, this is important on so many levels, not the least of which was the fact that having an eternal perspective was going to be something that Mary and Joseph were going to need as they faced other difficult circumstances in life. Imagine starting your marriage under the, scenario, under the circumstances that Mary and Joseph started there. It's very difficult. And as you know, what we know about the rest of their life, they faced some difficult circumstances. Um, They had to flee down to Egypt. Mary had to watch her son being tortured and crucified. There's a lot that they had to endure, I'm sure, that we know of and other things that I'm sure that we don't know about. But the point is, this would have been a wonderful lesson to have learned early in their marriage, that no matter how bad things look, God is always at work. But these truths were also important for Mary and Joseph on another level. So think about this. As Mary and Joseph raised Jesus, they would have been able to speak to Jesus on a very personal level of the importance of looking at things from an eternal perspective. And you know what they could refer back to to drive home that point? His birth. Mary becoming pregnant and Joseph wanting to divorce her. Could you imagine them, you know, this is speculation, but saying to young Jesus at some point in his life, I became pregnant by the Holy Spirit and your father couldn't understand it and was going to divorce me. And it was, we were in this dark valley, but in that dark valley, it was revealed to us, both of us, that God has his eternal purposes at play at all times. 
And this surely would have had an impact, I think, on Jesus as he grew up. And believe it or not, this has a bearing on each of us here today. As we raise children and grandchildren and even great-grandchildren or have influence over children, listen, folks, there are going to be times in your life and in the events of your life from a, that from a worldly perspective don't look good, don't look promising, and don't look hopeful at all. And in that moment, everything in you is going to want to look at it from an, a limited worldly perspective. And it's precisely in those moments that you cannot lose sight of the fact that God is working out his purposes in your life and in the life of your family. As you faithfully maintain an eternal perspective, even in the valleys, even in the difficult times, you know who's going to be watching you? Your children, your grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren. They are going to grow up watching mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, great-grandma and grandpa. They're going to grow up watching you navigate life with this spiritual skill on full display. And it will no doubt impact them. Do you want to know one of the greatest gifts you, gifts you can give to the next generation? Teach them to look at things from God's perspective. And I think in, a, in this day and age, folks, the younger generation is starving for that. I mean, the younger generation, after coming through a year like 2020, have to, their hearts have to be hard or, or sunken or just weighed down with difficulties. I can't imagine being young in this world today. It was tough enough for me to be young in the 80s and 90s. 2000s, I was still pretty young. <laughs> it's easy for us, it, we, for those of us that are older and we're, we, we're looking at the teenagers of this generation and the younger generation, it's easy to forget. It's, if you think that this year has been tough on us, imagine being young and trying to process everything that has happened very difficult. I think the greatest gift that we can give them right now isn't better politics, isn't better education, isn't better economics. It's an eternal perspective. If we can tell them and train them and teach them to look at everything that's unfolding from God's perspective, it'd be the greatest gift that we can give them. It's no wonder that the Bible time and again tells us to remember. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember the wonders, your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Why do I do that? Because I look back into history and I see, wow, even in the diff most difficult of times, God was fulfilling his eternal purposes in those generations. And if he would fulfill his divine purposes in those generations, even when the in the midst of the most difficult circumstances, if he would do it in those generations, he'll do it in this generation. And if he did it for my family a hundred years ago, he'll do it for my family today. And if he did it for me Five years ago, he'll do it for me today. He will work out all things according to the counsel of his will in my life, no matter how difficult things might seem or be. See, folks, whether you know it or not, your life is a living testimony of God's eternal purposes, even in the darkest of valleys. Every one of us in here have stories of when we went through dark valleys and God was faithful to us. And that how he worked out his purposes, it may not have always been pleasant to go through those circumstances, and they might not have always been tied up with a perfect bow at the end of them, but God was faithful, and he worked out his purposes in our lives, even during difficult circumstances. But it wasn't just the events leading up to the birth of Christ, where this truth is powerfully demonstrated. It's also in the events immediately following the birth of Christ. So after Jesus is born, Joseph is warned in a dream that Herod is seeking to kill Jesus. Again, church, the word of God. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. At this point, if I'm Joseph, I might be like, Lord, stop talking to me in my dreams. I can barely handle it. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. So nothing will scare, for those of you that have been parents, that are parents, you can relate to this. Nothing will scare a parent more, and especially a new parent, than the thought of harm coming to their child. Amen? Now, by the third or fourth child, they can juggle knives, no big deal. But the first child, right, we're a little bit protective of that first child. 
And so this is the situation that Mary and Joseph find themselves in. Their first child is born, and it's not like there's potential danger. There's real danger. Herod is seeking to kill Jesus. To make matters even more precarious, Joseph is told to relocate his family to a foreign country for an undisclosed amount of time. Again, from a worldly perspective, Mary and Joseph are not in an enviable situation. But once again... Mary and Joseph are going to see how God is working all things out according to the counsel of his will and for his eternal purposes. And we see this in verse 15. Here's the rest of that sentence. And remain there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So let me explain. From a worldly perspective, having to flee down to Egypt looked like a major inconvenience. Perhaps in It was even a major setback. But from an eternal perspective, God was doing something extraordinary. What was he doing? Here's what he was doing. You will remember that 2,400 years before Jesus was ever born, the nation of Israel was being held captive in Egypt as slaves. They had been slaves for 400 years. And they had cried out to God and God had miraculously called the nation of Israel up out of Egypt. Now, God is sending Mary, Joseph, and Jesus back down to Egypt so that he could one day call Jesus up out of Egypt, just as he had done with the nation of Israel 2,400 years earlier. Why is that important? Here's why it's important. When God called the nation of Israel up out of Egypt, you know what happened? They proved to be unfaithful, disobedient, and wayward in their actions and behaviors in the centuries to come. Jesus would be just the opposite. He would be perfectly faithful and perfectly obedient in every way. Where the nation of Israel failed, Christ would succeed. You see, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, like many things in the Old Testament, was a type or shadow. They were a type and shadow. In this case, physical Israel was pointing forward to the true Israel, Jesus, who would one day be called up out of Egypt. And even more importantly, those who, you, who are united with Christ in faith are now grafted in and part of true Israel. So going down to Egypt might have looked like a major setback, but in fact, God was fulfilling a promise, fulfilling scripture, and doing things on an eternal perspective that were truly incredible, truly incredible. You know, what's interesting is the Jewish people thought that since they were the physical descendants of Abraham, they had Abraham's blood running through them and members of the physical nation of Israel, that they were by association children of God. I have Abraham's blood running through me, therefore I'm a child of God. But the New Testament makes it very clear that's not the case. Romans 2 says this, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And then Romans 9 says this, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. This means that it is not the children of flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Let me ask you a question. Those that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, are they children of Abraham? Yes, they are. That's why we sing the song, Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. Please tell me you know the song. And I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Okay, so apparently a few of you know that song. (laughs) I'm going to say one other thing here. It's very important that everyone that's listening to me right now understand this. You are not a true child of God because of the nation that you were born into or the family that you were born into or the church that you attend or the person that you are married to. The only way to become a true child of God is by coming to faith with a repentant heart and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior. But again, you see the bigger point in all of this. The virgin becomes pregnant out of wedlock, looks like a disaster. No, God's working his eternal purposes through that. The young couple is forced to go down to Egypt, looks like a disaster. No, God's working his eternal purposes through that We want to avoid at all costs looking at things from our limited worldly perspective. Unfortunately, it is a trap that I fall into time and time again as a pastor. Again, it is my default response. 
But here's the good news. You want to know the good news? 2020 is a perfect opportunity for you to develop this spiritual skill. All of us are developing that skill of looking at things from eternal perspective. You have been given a, you've been given something on a golden platter. It's called 2020. And you go, that's not something that would ever come to me on a golden platter. From a worldly perspective, no. But from an eternal perspective, yes. You've been given a gift in 2020 because now you can exercise and grow a spiritual skill that will change your life. And by the way, I will tell you right now, there's certain things that you can do as Christians that will change your life on a dime. And that, that might be a great sermon series, but I'm going to tell you right now at the top of that list, one of the things that you can do to change things immediately is get the right perspective, is get an eternal perspective. Get your eyes off the world and put it on the king. Put it on eternal things and your life will change on a dime uh, because of that. From a worldly perspective, 2020 looks like a disaster, but we who are Christians know full well that God is at work. And while God's eternal purposes for 2020 might not be totally clear to us, I don't understand all that he's doing. I do think that he's bringing judgment on our country. I do think that he's purifying the church in this process. I do think he's exposing wickedness and evil in our government in the process. I think he's doing a whole host of things through this. But even then, I don't totally understand the full extent of how this is working out according to his divine purposes. But I do have hope. I do have a hope that the world doesn't have that whatever goes down is going to be part of God's plan. Amen? Amen. And what goes down in 2021 may not be what you hope or want. But if you're a believer, you know this. God's in control. And that it's going, whatever goes down, God's in control. And because of that, we have hope. Remember the question I often ask. Does God know the future? Does God know the future? Yes, he does. Of course he does. Again, I told you, and this is true, there's a group of theologians called open theists who believe that God doesn't know the future, which I, again, I, you need to know that. But of course God knows the future. But here's the question most people never ponder. How does God know the future? Again, there's the simple foreknowledge view. He just looks down the corridor of time and sees what's happening and learns kind of what's happening. Or that's the outside of space and time. He's up here and just kind of, he can see the beginning from the end. But the Bible doesn't just say that God sees the beginning from the end. The Bible says he decrees the beginning from the end. He declares the beginning from the end. God knows the future because he decrees all things that come to pass. He does. And we see it in verses like this, Isaiah 46. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. Not just seeing it. Not just learning about it. But declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Theologians refer to this as God's divine decree. So do the great catechisms down through church history. God isn't just watching history unfold, folks. God is directing history unfold as it unfolds. And what that means, as crazy as it sounds, is that God has a purpose for the coronavirus. God has a purpose for all the political turmoil. God has a purpose for the riots. And it may not make perfect sense to you and me on this side of heaven, but God knows what he's doing. He's got a purpose in all of it. All of it is being weaved together to fulfill his divine purposes in this age and for this generation and for this very moment. But here's where it also applies to each of us on an individual basis. Every little detail that is unfolding in your personal life right now, folks, is happening according to God's plans for your life. There is nothing that is happening in your life that isn't a part of God's divine decree for you personally. You do realize that everything in your life has been given to you by God. Everything from the family that you were born into to the number of hairs on your head to the day that you will die has all been decreed by God for you. You will not die a day sooner than you're supposed to and you won't live a day longer than God has decreed for you. All the days ordained for me were written in your book of life, the scriptures say. By the way, even the good works that you will accomplish in this lifetime were prepared beforehand by God. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And you're thinking, well, how does that work? That's confusing to me. Welcome to the club. I can't always get the strings of my understanding and what God's word says to touch. And man, I try. There's times I'm pulling and pulling. And I can only get them so close. But the point is this, you guys. God has you right where he has you. 
He has your family right where he has you. And you might be in a difficult way right now. Your family might be in a difficult way. Maybe you're in a good place, but you have family members that aren't. God knows what he's doing. And he's working all things out according to the counsel of his will. And even if things don't make total sense to you right now, believe this. Do not, whatever you do, look at things from a worldly perspective. Resist with everything in you the temptation to look at things from a worldly perspective. By the way, do you want to know the first casualty when you look at things from a worldly perspective? The first casualty is hope. I guarantee you, I had to get off Facebook. You know why? Because every time I went on, I lost hope. It's the first thing to go. But very important, listen to me. Do you know the first fruit that you bear? One of the very first fruits that you bear when you get an eternal perspective? Hope. It's the first casualty and the first fruit. You get to decide what's going to be in your life. If hope's going to be in your life, if you want to lose it, look at the world. It'll be the first thing to go. But I guarantee you, and that's why I said, if you want to change your life faster, if you want to change today faster in any way, possible way, one of the quickest ways to do it is get an eternal perspective because immediately you're going to be jolted with a dose of hope. It's like vitamin B12. Boom. I feel better. Of course you do because you're looking at things from an eternal perspective and you realize that your life is short and it's temporary and what's happening here is going to pass and that God is fulfilling his purposes and he's got you right where he wants you and there's going to be a day when you're in glory and it's all going to make sense. Amen? So take heart, have hope. I know many of us, we're worried about our health. We're worried about our finances. We're worried about our future. Guess what, folks? I say it all the time. We're on the back nine somewhere. Your life is short. You're but a breath. You're here today, gone tomorrow. Keep your eyes on the 18th green and just beyond it is the clubhouse. That's home. And that's where we're headed. And know that even if it's difficult right now, God's got a purpose for where he has you. He had a purpose for Mary and Joseph. He could have told Joseph ahead of time that Mary was going to become pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Why didn't he? Probably a whole host of reasons, but I think one of the reasons is to to teach him that even in the midst of this, Joseph, in the midst of difficult and dark times, guess what? I've got an eternal purpose. He could have have done things absolutely different in their lives to make their lives a whole lot easier along the way. Why didn't he? Probably for the same reason he doesn't do it in our lives, to teach us so that we will learn to walk by faith, so that we will learn to trust him even in the darkest of valleys when he's not giving us a dream and telling us exactly what's going on. When When we're having to walk by faith and not by sight, even then we will trust him and walk with him with hearts that love him and believe that he's working out his purposes in those moments. I think when Jesus told the disciples, he goes, blessed, I think it's uh, John chapter 20 when, when he's talking to Thomas and Thomas says, let me see the nails and let me see the marks. And Jesus said, blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. And I think there is a blessing that comes for us as believers when we are in valleys and difficult times and we are believing that God, you are working out your purposes even now. I may not understand it. It may not, may not make sense to me, but God, I know you're in control and I know that you're gonna use this for you, my good and your glory. And by my good, I don't mean that I'm gonna prosper out of this. It just means my good that God, you're gonna humble me and break me and make me more and craft me more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. I'm gonna finish with a thought here, two thoughts real quick. This same truth, that God is working out his purposes even in the darkest of valleys is demonstrated down through church history. Some of the darkest times in church history from a worldly standard actually proved to be incredible from an eternal perspective. This starts in Acts chapter eight. Acts chapter eight, the early church is persecuted and they spread out over the Roman empire. From a worldly perspective, the church being persecuted looks like a horrible thing. Guess what happened when the church spread out over the Roman empire? Yeah, they got hit with the gospel. The gospel went forth. It would almost almost certainly have to include the events leading up to and surrounding the Protestant Reformation. The Middle Ages were a horrible time in world history. Dark, disease, you had the bubonic plague, everything else. Spiritual light was basically the the light coming out of Rome and the Catholic Church at that time, because that's all there was, was the Catholic Church. Well, there was the Eastern Orthodox Church, but... The light of the gospel was very dim during those times. And yet out of that arose the Protestant Reformation. 
And this very reality seems to be playing out even today. And you know what? You know one place where I think this is happening? It's China. I just read this article this week, but it was written December 27th of 2019, so a little less than a year ago. Growth of underground churches worrisome for China's, China's leaders. So a year ago, the growth of the church in China, the underground church in China was worrisome to its leaders. And if you follow, if you've been following the news at all, you know that the church in China over this last year has been persecuted greatly. They're shutting down churches, destroying churches, so on and so forth. From a worldly perspective, that would make my heart sink. Except that I know my God is in control of that. My God is in control of all of that. And I need to resist the temptation to look at that from a worldly perspective and praise God and pray for my brothers and sisters in China, but pray, God, continue to do your great work in the midst of these people, even though it makes no sense to me from on this side of heaven, God, do your great work in them. Just as God, I ask that you would do your great work in me, even when it makes no sense to me. And again, you might be sitting here today going, 2020 doesn't make sense to me. What's going on in my life doesn't make sense to me. Nothing makes sense to me. Guess what? Welcome to the club. But whatever you do, do not fall into the temptation to look at things from a worldly perspective. That's the last thing you want to do because the first casualty is hope. You want to change your life today, get an internal perspective because the first fruit that you will bear, you will bear it even before you leave this campus is hope. So I finished with this thought. This Christmas, I'm, I'm going to show you my prophetic skills right now. You ready? I'm going to act as a prophet because I'm going to tell you what you're going to do this Christmas and I'm going to be right. That's how good I am at being a prophet. This Christmas, you're going to gather with friends and family. Here's the point. Please speak in that moment as one who has an eternal perspective. Because I bet you'll be the only one in the room at the time that will. You are going to gather with your friends and family and everybody's going to be talking about, and most certainly everybody's going to be looking at it from a worldly perspective. And you are going to be given a golden opportunity to shed an eternal perspective into their lives and change the way they think. Take advantage of that opportunity when it comes to you. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come before you. And Lord, you are often doing things we don't understand. A virgin becoming pregnant without her husband doesn't make sense. Going down to Egypt doesn't make sense. And God, a lot of stuff down through world history hasn't made sense to us on this side of heaven. But God, the one thing you have proven time and again, that you are working your purposes out, even when they don't make sense to us. And Lord, I know that there are many of us in here and even watching online God, we're in that very situation where events are unfolding in our life and we're trying to process them. They don't make a lot of sense to us. But God, help us to resist looking at things from a worldly perspective. Help us to see and believe and know that you are at work even in the darkest of valleys. So Father, we love you. We thank you and we look forward to celebrating with the saints the birth of your son in just a few weeks. We pray these things in his son's name, in your son's name. And the church said with me, Amen. Hey, God bless you. Thank you for coming.
Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries has opportunities for anyone to volunteer in editing, producing the program, or even reviewing broadcasts at our office. You don't have to be an expert. We are excited to teach anyone that is willing to learn. If you are interested in learning how to be an editor, producer, or even a reviewer, please contact us at 602-866-8999 or email us at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. The following program is called The God of Abraham. Hello everyone, my name is Terry from The God of Abraham. This session and the next one will be the last two sessions. Last week, we looked into Isaac's wedding. We shared that marriage is not done out of love, but to love. There may be some misunderstanding when we say that marriage is not done out of love, but to love. Many people marry out of love, but at some point, they don't feel the love anymore, so they get divorced. That is why we mention this. If marriage is not done out of love but to love, then even after marriage, the purpose will continue to be to love each other. Today, we'll look into Isaac's wedding and the wedding of Jesus and the church. However, we are not going to talk about some special mystery. If we look closely at the process of Isaac's wedding, we can also understand God's plan of salvation. That is why we're explaining this part. It varies by scholars, but for the most part, Israel's wedding is categorized into five steps. The first step of a traditional wedding is Shidukin, where one looks for a marriage partner. In Israel, the parents of the bride and groom arrange marriages. These arrangements are made when the child is very young. Once the marriage partner is decided upon, then it goes to ketubah, which is the second step. Ketubah is the marital contract. The groom writes and proposes a promise about the future to the person who will be his bride. Even now, a groom will write a ketubah and give it to the person who will be the bride. In a ketubah, the groom writes who he is, what kind of person he is, and promises what kind of life he will live after marriage. However, people may just say these kinds of things and forget everything after the wedding as if it never happened. There are wives who may think, I should have wrote all the promises before the wedding. A ketubah remains as a document so the promise doesn't disappear. As I mentioned, since the woman never met the man, she gets information about the person who will be her husband based on the ketubah. Then she thinks, yes. This man is worth marrying, or no, this is not the life I want. In this way, a woman can make her decision after receiving a ketubah and finding out about the person who will be her husband. She can say, I will marry him, or I will not marry this man. Therefore, a ketubah plays a very important role since it's an important basis to decide a marriage. For this reason, it's better to write it precisely. When a woman receives a ketubah and approves the marriage, then the third step is the engagement stage called erusin, where the bride and groom promise marriage. According to some scholars, in the erusin stage of engagement, there is a ceremony of mikvah. Mikvah means collected water or hope. In Jewish tradition, Mikvah, meaning collected water, is a ceremony of purity where people dip their bodies in collected water. After the groom and bride decide to marry, and after they perform this ceremony of purity, they make a promise to each other to be faithful until the day of the wedding. After erusin, or the engagement, they enter the fourth step called kitchen. Kitchen is the time period when the groom prepares the house where he will greet his bride and begin a life of marriage. While the groom is preparing a house, the bride keeps her purity and prepares for marriage. It's the time for her to prepare how she'll live and think about what kind of wife she will be. However, 
This time period is not set. Depending on the circumstance, some grooms quickly prepare a house while others may take a long time. Therefore, the time period may vary. It could be as short as a few months or as long as a few years. The amusing part is that when the groom's father feels like the groom is almost done with preparing a house, he says, Now go and get your wife. Then the son will get his wife. This is the fifth step called Nisuin. Nisuin comes from the word Nisura, meaning to pull or to drag. It means the groom brings a wife to the house. Now the wedding is really getting started. The groom goes with his friends to bring the bride. The groom's friends follow the groom while blowing trumpets. In this way, the traditional Jewish wedding has five steps. This final step of the marriage leads to the actual wedding, but the wedding actually begins when the groom first chooses his bride. In Isaac's wedding, all the steps in a wedding we just mentioned are not included. The order has been changed a little. However, the result is similar. First, Abraham the father appoints who Isaac's wife will be. He didn't directly see the wife to be an appointer, but he ordered his servant to find her at a certain place and told him the specific method of finding her. Then Abraham's servant departed to go find a bride for Isaac. When the servant arrived, he then prayed and met the woman that God intended. After meeting the bride-to-be, he went to her house and began talking. What did he talk about? He introduced Abraham's son Isaac. Then he talked about where they lived and how God blessed Abraham so he became wealthy and prosperous. He explained the second step ketubah in words instead of a written document. He introduced Isaac and guaranteed a certain lifestyle for the bride. Then he asked, what about Rebecca? Will she accept the marriage proposal? Genesis chapter 24 verse 58 says that Rebecca accepted the proposal by saying that she will go with the servant. In this way, they have entered the erusin or engagement stage. However, in Isaac's case, he did not need time to prepare a house since it was already prepared. Therefore, the time of kitchen to prepare a house was not necessary. Instead, Isaac met his wife Rebecca in the field and led her to his mother's tent and got married. This was the last step of Nisuin. By looking at Isaac's wedding and the Jewish wedding ceremony, we can naturally see the connection between Jesus and the church. God chooses the church from out of the world to be the bride of his son Jesus Christ. In the ketubah step, God introduced who the groom is. After the engagement, there is a time to prepare a house and it leads to the wedding. This clearly resembles the current church. Ketubah records who the groom is and the promise of what the groom will do once married. This is our Bible. The Bible tells us who Jesus is and what kind of promise there is when we take him as our groom. It also tells us what Jesus will do for us. When someone reads the ketubah and then decides to live with Jesus, he then accepts the promise and becomes engaged to Christ. When we make this promise, we receive baptism. It's a promise of purity to be faithful to each other until the wedding. When we become engaged, Jesus the groom goes to his father and prepares a place for him to dwell with us. Let's read John chapter 14, verse 2 through 3. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. While we wait for Jesus, who is going to prepare a place, the church, his bride, has duties here on earth. Since an engagement has the same influence as a wedding, we must live in purity now as his bride here on earth. We must study, prepare, and discipline ourselves to know what Jesus our groom desires, what his character is like, and how to please him. 
One day, when Father God says, "Son, bring your wife now," with the sound of the trumpet, Jesus will come back to earth again to take his wife, the church, with him. Jesus and the church will enter the New Jerusalem house and live forever in happiness. This is written in the Bible, which is his marriage contract. Therefore, it is important to read the Bible. It is the season to celebrate and remember how Jesus came to this earth as a baby. I hope we will not forget who Jesus is and why he came to this earth. We'll end our session here. I'll see you next week. Merry Christmas.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.